You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hello. My name is Matt, host of the Pirate History Podcast. Pirates rank among the most mythologized and romanticized of all historical figures. It can become easy to forget that pirates were real people that had real-world concerns. If you like tales of high seas adventure, daring do, and also want to learn more about who Blackbeard supported to be king, you can learn more about all of that at the Pirate History Podcast. Hello, and welcome to the Explorers Podcast. Today we have the second and final episode in our series on French explorers Jacques Marquette and Louis Joliet. Last time, the two men had reached the Big River, the Mississippi, in the summer of 1673. It was a triumph, but now they had to follow the river, ideally to its outlet, and then return home. A few notes for today. First, there is a map on our website, explorerspodcast.com, of our explorer's route. So check that out if you want to understand our journey a little better. Second, I want to take a moment to give you some more information about the sources for this podcast, as I neglected some stuff on this topic in our first episode. Regarding this, our primary source about this expedition is from Father Jacques Marquette. The man kept a journal, and from that, we get a lot of the information we use in this podcast. Louis Joliet also kept a journal and made detailed maps. However, Joliet's documentation would be lost on the return journey. The loss of his maps and charts was especially disappointing, as Joliet was an expert at such things. Now, Joliet would recount the expedition to another Jesuit priest, from memory, but many of the details were lost. Also, and this is really important, when Marquette's journal was ultimately put together, some of the things included in it were likely from Joliet's verbal report. Anyhow, I will talk more about this situation at the end of today's show. Third item. Last time, I referred to Mackinac Island and the Mackinac Strait as Mackinac. It should have been Mackinac. The spelling looks like Mackinac, but it's pronounced Mackinac. I knew this going in, yet still made the mistake. Sorry for that error, and thanks to everyone who pointed it out. And that's it for notes, so on to part two in our series on Marquette and Joliet. The French explorers entered the Mississippi on June 17, 1673, at what today is Prairie du Chien, Wisconsin. The men were ecstatic once upon the river. There was no question that this was the big river talked about by the native peoples. The southward-flowing Mississippi was wide and powerful and had multiple channels. Islands dotted the route. Around the men, there were big bluffs, forests, and open plains. Game was sighted along the banks of the river, including deer, turkeys, duck, and other fowl. And in the river, the men were astounded by the monster fish that they encountered. One-hundred-pound sturgeon and catfish bumped against the canoes. These were so big, men were worried the canoe's birch bark coverings would get damaged. Also, the men would shoot and kill a buffalo near the riverbank, finding it so big that they could not move it. The seven French explorers followed the Mississippi as it flowed south, but they were cautious. These were new lands, and they were concerned about upsetting any tribes they encountered. At night, they came ashore, built a small fire to cook dinner, then buried all evidence of their presence. 
They slept in their canoes, anchored offshore, a sentry always on duty. For more than a week, the men saw no sign of other human activity until June 25th when they came upon some footprints on the riverbank leading to a trail away from the river. Joliet Marquette elected to follow this trail alone, carrying some trade goods. They wanted to talk to the natives to find out more about the region and the Mississippi. After several hours of marching, they reached a village. Joliet called out to warn the natives about their approach. This sent the people scrambling in surprise. The two Frenchmen were soon approached by four village elders, who offered the men a chance to smoke a peace pipe called a calumet by the natives. With that, all was good. These were Peoria Indians, part of the Illinois Confederation, and this was their territory. The Illinois River was not far off. Marquette was able to converse with the natives. The appearance of Joliet and Marquette caused a sensation in the village. The people had probably heard of white men, but it was unlikely any of them had ever seen one before. Word quickly spread to other nearby villages, and soon men were coming to see the strange travelers, along with invitations to come visit. In this way, Marquette and Joliet visited several villages in the area, one with more than 300 homes. At each village, they handed out presents and then asked about the Mississippi. Which way did it flow? Where did it go? What tribes were before them? What dangers lay ahead? The answers they got were mostly the same. The river ran long and far to the south, farther than anyone knew. Some said that it opened into a great sea. As for dangers, there were monsters and other hazards down the river. Regarding native tribes, a chief gave the explorers a calumet, a peace pipe. He told them to present the pipe to any tribe that they encountered, and it would help them pass peacefully down the river. Also, one chief asked the French to take with them a boy of around ten. He was to learn from the newcomers and become wise in their ways, and then return to their people. The boy is described in some sources as a slave, and in others as a son of a chief. Either way, Marquette and Joliet agreed to take the boy with them. The explorer's visit was highlighted by a feast where the natives served a boiled mashed corn called sagamite plus roasted meats. As a note, the expedition now knew the location of the Illinois River, and if the stories were true, the Illinois led to Lake Michigan. That offered them a potential alternate route home instead of going back up the Mississippi, Wisconsin, and Fox Rivers. When the two canoes finally departed the area, the native peoples gathered in great numbers to see them off. The people lined the banks of the river, Marquette writing of the moment, quote, We embark in the sight of all the people who admire our little canoes, for they have never seen any like them. End quote. And so south went the expedition, and it wasn't long before they encountered the monsters described by the native peoples. It was a pair of murals painted high on the cliffs near present-day Alton, Illinois, not far from St. Louis. Marquette described the site in his journal as such, quote, While skirting some rocks, which by their height and length inspired awe, we saw upon them two painted monsters, which at first made us afraid, and upon which the boldest savages dare not long rest their eyes. They are as large as a calf. They have horns on their heads like those of a deer, a horrible look, red eyes, a beard like a tiger's, a face somewhat like a man's, a body covered with scales, and so long a tail that it winds around the body, passing above the head and going back between the legs, ending in a fish's tail. Green, red, and black are the three colors composing the picture. Moreover, the two monsters are so well painted that we cannot believe that any savage is their author, for good painters in France would find it difficult to reach the place conveniently to paint them. End quote. This was a warning about the dangers that lay ahead, dangers that were very real. And I love how these things were so vivid. You can sense the fear in Marquette's writings. These monsters, by the way, are called Piasaw birds, creatures from Native American mythology. One of our listeners, Zach, reached out to me after the first episode dropped, and he told me that the idea of spirits and demons living in the waters of the Mississippi was common for the tribes of the region. 
These deeply spiritual stories warned people about the dangers that lay ahead, not so different from a perilous stretch of road during a blizzard in today's world. These stories were so powerful that there were instances where the drowning victims recovered by the tribes would be treated differently in burial due to the association with these malevolent underwater spirits. Anyhow, regarding the PSA birds, today the murals have been recreated near the junction of the Illinois and Mississippi rivers based on early sketches of the paintings. On a personal note, I grew up in Wisconsin and I remember reading a story in the newspaper about the PSA monsters when I was younger, but I never really heard anything else about them. And thus, I was thrilled to rediscover that story 30 to 40 years later when reading the narrative of this expedition. And so south went the explorers, and it was not long before the dangers warned about emerged. About a dozen miles downriver, or 20 kilometers, a roar could be heard by the men. And soon Marquette and Joliet came to the confluence of the Mississippi and Missouri rivers. Father Marquette wrote, quote, I have seen nothing more dreadful, end quote. Here the two mighty rivers converged a stream of muddy, turbulent waters pouring into the Mississippi, bringing along trees, logs, branches, and millions of gallons of water. It was a sight none of the men had ever imagined. The swirling waters spun the canoes around, forcing them to get to the smoother waters of the eastern bank of the Mississippi. After this dangerous run, the men faced another set of rapids, followed by another great river, the Ohio, which is about 200 miles, or 320 kilometers, south of the Missouri. With the additional flowage of each tributary, the Mississippi grew bigger and wider and more impressive. One thing I want to mention is that the expedition's two canoes had gone this far with no major damage. This was not easy as the rivers were filled with underwater branches and floating debris. If the birch bark canoe had a flaw, it was that the covers could easily get torn and damaged. Thus far, that had not been an issue. By the way, as the two canoes floated further and further south in the heart of summer, one issue that did arise was the mosquitoes. They were brutal. The men set up crude cloth tents over the canoes to protect themselves from the biting little beasts. And so, as the men moved deeper down the Mississippi, they encountered natives whose language they did not always understand. The Illinois boy who had joined the expedition upriver was, at times, able to speak with the natives, but not always. Another dangerous sign was that the French saw muskets amongst the natives. It was not long before other European goods popped up as well, including knives, hatchets, hose, and cloth. Thankfully, the French had the calumet, the peace pipe, with them, and Père Marquette said that on more than one occasion, natives acted threateningly, only to back off when he held up the peace pipe. Example, one time a man threw a club at the French, and others prepared to shower them with arrows. But when Marquette held up the calumet, all was good. Joliet and Marquette passed out knives, hatchets, and beads as gifts. The French were then given food and treated well. And so, further south the expedition went, until they reached a Copa village, the mouth of the Arkansas River. Attempts to communicate were limited, although one old man spoke a little of the language of the Illinois people, so he and the boy were able to converse a bit. Marquette and Joliet asked what lay to the south. The reply they got was discouraging. They were told the sea was only ten days away, and white men could be found there. And there were rumors that some hostile natives were waiting for the strange travelers, intent on ambushing them and taking all their stuff. At this point, the French expedition had traveled more than 1,100 miles, or 1,800 kilometers, from the mouth of the Wisconsin to the mouth of the Arkansas. They understood that they had gone almost directly south, and they were not going to find a passage to the Pacific. Instead, they were aware that they were approaching the holdings of the Spanish Empire. If a French expedition showed up at the mouth of the Mississippi, the Spanish would not be happy. At best, the men would be held prisoner for a time, and all their stuff, including their journals and maps, would be confiscated. At worst, they would be killed. And so, on July 17th, Joliet and Marquette decided to turn around. 
It was just too risky to keep going on. The men didn't know it, but they were only 435 miles, or 700 kilometers, from the Gulf of Mexico. The challenge ahead was the men now had to paddle upriver against the current in the hot summer sun, a difficult task even for the hardy voyagers. Progress up the Mississippi was slow, but steady. The expedition had made friends along the river, a testament to their wisdom in dealing with the natives. I like to point out how important communication is on expeditions of discovery. So many times explorers get sidetracked or stalled, or even killed, because they can't communicate properly. For the most part, Marquette and Joliet understood this, and they were able to cross over more than a thousand miles of unknown land in relative peace. And so the expedition moved up the Mississippi, stopping and resting when able. Food was not an issue. The biggest problem they ran into was at the mouth of the Missouri River, where the heavy waters almost overturned the canoes. But the men navigated the difficult situation and continued on. At the Illinois River, the expedition elected to deviate from their course. They had been told that the Illinois River reached Lake Michigan. So instead of continuing up the Mississippi, Marquette and Joliet decided to follow this new course. If successful, it offered a second potential trading route from the Great Lakes region to the Gulf of Mexico. The French paddled up the Illinois River, heading northeast, noting it was rich with beaver. After about 200 miles, or 320 kilometers, they reached a major settlement, Kaskaskia, which had 74 homes and more than 1,500 men. The natives received the French with enthusiasm and extracted a promise from Marquette that he would return to them. They also offered to show the French the route to Lake Michigan. And so up the Illinois, the party continued. At modern-day Des Plaines, Illinois, the river forks, and the French continued on the Des Plaines River. That river took the party further east, but once they ran into some swamps, they were forced to portage the canoe six miles to the Chicago River. This was just like the men had done between the Fox and Wisconsin rivers, although three times as long. Once on the Chicago River, the men were able to reach Lake Michigan. At this point, their Illinois guides returned home. The French now headed north, up the western coast of Lake Michigan. They paddled along the Wisconsin coast and then entered Green Bay. It wasn't long before the men reached the Jesuit mission at St. Francis Xavier at the mouth of the Fox River. It was late September. The expedition had traveled nearly 3,000 miles, or 4,700 kilometers, in four months. They had not reached the mouth of the Mississippi, but had found and mapped the majority of the Great River. Now, here at St. Francis Xavier, Father Marquette elected to stay while the rest of the men continued on to Sault Ste. Marie. The reason for this was that Marquette had been suffering on and off from dysentery and fevers for several weeks. He had recently been suffering from diarrhea and cramps. To be honest, the men had been relatively healthy on their journey, Marquette's ailments the worst thing to hit the party. At this point, Marquette wanted to rest and recuperate, and so the priest stayed at the Green Bay location, the rest of the men returning to Sault Ste. Marie. Louis Joliet was reunited with his brother Zachary, and the men were greeted warmly by the community. Now, as it was too late in the fall to return to Quebec, Joliet spent the winter preparing his journals and maps by firelight. Also, he wisely made a copy of everything. And so, in the spring, Joliet and his brother Zachary headed back east, hauling bundles of beaver pelts, plus a strong box with his map and journals. The French party, which included the Illinois Indian boy, paddled down St. Mary's River along the northern shore of Lake Huron and eventually down the St. Lawrence River. However, not far from Montreal, while going through a difficult stretch of rapids, Joliet's canoe was tossed against some rocks. Three men, including Joliet, the Indian boy, the strong box with Joliet's maps and journals, and the beaver pelts all went into the river. Everything was lost, and everyone died except Louis Joliet, who was saved by some men who were luckily nearby fishing. Joliet was crushed by the loss, later writing, quote, I was favored by good fortune during the whole time, but on my return, when I was about to reach Montreal, 
My canoe capsized, and I lost two men in a box wherein were all my papers, my journal, as well as some curios from those far-off countries. I am much grieved over the loss of a ten-year-old boy who had been presented to me. End quote. Joliet returned to Quebec and made his report, doing his best as he could to recreate his journal from memory. Now, if you remember, Joliet had made a copy of his documents, which were back at Sault Ste. Marie. So what happened to those? Well, in the spring of 1675, some rival Sioux and Cree Indians got into a fight at Sault Ste. Marie. The mission burned down in the fighting, everything destroyed, including the copy of Joliet's journal. That is how Jacques Marquette's journal has become the major source of information about the expedition. Joliet did his best to recreate his documents, but after the fact just isn't the same thing, especially when it comes to maps. Losing those was a great blow, as Marquette's map-making skills were limited. And so at this point, the story of Marquette and Joliet's expedition is mostly done. But each man has an interesting story about the years after the journey, and so I will tell each of those tales. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED lights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say. Your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Regarding the rest of the lives of our explorers, I will start with Marquette as his story is easiest. Jacques Marquette spent the winter of 1673-74 recovering from his illnesses. He preached to the locals and also made a copy of his journal, which included a crude map. He wanted to return to Kaskaskia and set up a mission, but he was still too frail from his past travels. It wasn't until the fall of 1674 that Marquette had sufficiently recovered from his illnesses, and thus his superiors in Sault Ste. Marie deemed him fit for more missionary work. He was thus given permission to set up a mission amongst the Illinois. Marquette departed on October 25, 1674, along with a group of Native Americans. Two of the men who had traveled down the Mississippi on the recent expedition, Jacques Aguizier and Pierre Porteret, accompanied him. The progress of the party was hampered by early snows. They didn't reach the Chicago River until December 4th, and by then, Marquette's illnesses had returned. He had a bad fever, dysentery, and wouldn't eat. And to top it all off, the Chicago River was frozen over. The men set up a winter camp near the portage to the Des Plaines River. Marquette would get worse over the coming weeks. Friendly natives brought corn, dried meats, and pumpkins to the French. Also, Pierre Moreau, another of the original voyagers on the Mississippi expedition, had found out about Marquette's plight from the local people. Moreau was in the area trapping. He would travel 50 miles, or 80 kilometers, in the snow to bring Marquette and his companions food and supplies. Father Marquette, Porteret, and Laguisier would survive the worst of the winter, Marquette's health improving in late February. 
On March 30th, 1674, the three men embarked on their canoes as the ice broke up on the river. It was still bitterly cold, but the men pressed on, first down the Des Plaines River and then the Illinois. They arrived at Kaskaskia on April 10th. It was said that 3,000 natives came out to greet the black robe. Marquette was enthralled by the reception and preached all Easter weekend. The men had spent nine years in the wilds of Canada, and it was said that he was a master orator, able to convey his passionate message, even though his subjects didn't fully understand the exact words. But Marquette's time in Kaskaskia was short. His health was failing, and it was decided that the best thing they could do for him was to get him back to Sault Ste. Marie by the fall. Marquette formally dubbed the village the mission of the Immaculate Conception, and he promised to return, or other black robes would follow if he could not. And thus, back went Arquette, along with his companions, Jacques Leguizier and Pierre Porteret. At times, the priest's health was so bad, he couldn't do anything and he had to be carried. The men reached Lake Michigan and paddled north. They went across the lake and up the eastern shore, as it was a more direct route to Sault Ste. Marie. Marquette's companions knew the priest was not well, and they wanted to get him to the mission so he could spend some time with his brethren. But Jacques Marquette was not going to make it, and he knew it. On May 17, 1675, the priest selected a place on the Michigan shore, a bluff overlooking the Great Lake. His companions carried him to the heights of the bluff, where he gazed upon the blue waters of Lake Michigan. Here, Marquette muttered some prayers, closed his eyes, and died. Père Jacques Marquette was just two weeks shy of his 38th birthday, and he was buried at what is present-day Ludington, Michigan. The nearby river that flows into Lake Michigan is called the Marquette River. It is said that Jesuit missionaries often have a fatalistic attitude toward death, as so many of them have died doing their duty to God and humanity. And I do not doubt that Jacques Marquette died pretty much how he imagined, out in the wilderness, bringing the word of God to the people, trying to save as many souls as he could. Marquette's party buried the priest and continued back to St. Ignace. The Ottawa Indians, however, so respected Marquette, they went to the site, dug up his bones, and brought them back to the mission, as was their custom. Marquette's bones were then reburied at St. Ignace, where they remain to this day. A monument to Marquette marks the grave. I have one sidetrack related to Marquette before we move on from him. When departing Kaskaskia shortly before his death, he promised that he or another priest would return. And that promise was kept when Father Claude Alloway, the priest at Green Bay, was sent to the new mission in 1676. And in an interesting turn, Marquette's traveling companion, Jacques Leizier, a trader three years older than Marquette, went on to become a Jesuit priest in 1690. He was assigned to the mission of the Immaculate Conception amongst the Illinois, living there until his death in 1714 at the age of 80. And that, my friends, completes the life of Father Jacques Marquette. I do want to discuss Marquette's legacy, but before we do that, I want to talk a bit about our other explorer, Louis Joliet. After the Mississippi expedition, Joliet returned to life as a trader, including operating the trading post at Sault Ste. Marie. In 1675, he got married to Claire Francois Bissot. The couple lived in Quebec and went on to have six children. Based upon the expedition with Marquette, Joliet asked colonial officials to recognize his trading rights to the Illinois Territory. He wanted to establish a trading post and settlement on the Illinois River. But Joliet's request was denied. Officials felt that his plans were too aggressive. The French presence in Canada was fragile, and expanding even further west was too much of a risk. And while Joliet didn't get those rights, officials did grant him the rights to the islands and waterways of Mangang, near the mouth of the St. Lawrence River. This was a good area for cod fishing and seal hunting. Now, Louis Joliet was not done as an explorer. In 1679, the French government came to him and asked him to cross overland to Hudson Bay to investigate rumors of rival trading posts set up by the British. 
The number of beaver pelts coming through New France had diminished in recent years, and French officials suspected the British were siphoning off business in the north. Joliet departed in May of 1679, along with three canoes and seven men, including his brother Zachary. The company followed the St. Lawrence River to the Saguenay River, and then headed northwest towards Hudson Bay. This was a difficult journey, as there is no direct water route toward that destination. The men ultimately had to conduct 125 portages before reaching James Bay, which is the southerly protrusion of Hudson Bay. Here they found a strong British presence. There were four forts in the region, and even a ship with 12 cannon. Joliet was welcomed by Charles Bailey, the English governor of Hudson Bay. Bailey knew of Joliet and treated him with respect. They ate and drank wine together. Bailey even offered Joliet a job. Well, Joliet wasn't going to be doing that, and he ultimately headed home. Upon his return, he told his bosses what was up, saying, quote, If the English are left in this bay, they will make themselves the masters of all the trade in Canada. End quote. In recognition of all that Joliet had done for the colony, in 1680, French officials gave him Anticosti Island. This is a large island at the mouth of the St. Lawrence River. It controlled the best seal and cod fisheries in the St. Lawrence region. Joliet built a fort with a garrison on the island. For ten years, Louis Joliet prospered. He became well-known and respected in the colony. His base at Anticosti Island was a frequent stopping point for ships entering and leaving the St. Lawrence River. The island, by the way, is tricky to navigate and famous for being home to hundreds of shipwrecks. But all of this would end in 1690 when the British arrived. This was during what was called the Nine Years' War. British ships raided Anticosti Island, sacking the Joliet warehouses. Beaver, otter, and fox pelts, and any trade goods were carried off. The fort and settlement were burned to the ground. The Joliet family escaped in a small boat, but they were captured by the English trying to make their way upriver. They were eventually freed in a prisoner exchange. Joliet tried to rebuild on Anticosti Island, but the English returned the following year, the results the same. Louis Joliet lost everything. And thus, Joliet turned to a new profession, that of a mapmaker and artist. In 1693, he went on a successful expedition, along with three of his teenage sons, mapping the coast of Labrador. His fine work increased his reputation as a mapmaker and navigator. Joliet was so successful in his field, he would visit Paris, where he was presented to the court of Louis XIV at Versailles. Louis appointed Joliet royal hydrographer and the king's mapmaker of Quebec. Joliet returned to Canada working as a pilot on the St. Lawrence, which he now knew intimately, and as a mapmaker. He even became a teacher of chart making at the Jesuit College in Quebec. Louis Joliet died at the end of the summer of 1700 at the age of 55. We don't know the circumstances of his death, only a notation in public records saying that a mass for a soul was held in Quebec on September 15, 1700. And that ends the story of Louis Joliet. I want to note that Joliet is one of the first native-born explorers of North America. Most of the people we talk about from this time frame, the 16th and 17th centuries, were born in Europe. But Joliet was different, having actually been born in Canada. And so, that is it for the lives of Jacques Marquette and Louis Joliet. I want to take some time to wrap up the accomplishments and ramifications of their search for the Mississippi and take a look at their legacy. But I want to start by making something very clear. This mission had been organized and led by Louis Joliet. For several reasons, Marquette has been thrust into a more prominent role. That's not a terrible thing, but I do want to help understand why. The first reason is that it is Marquette's journal that has survived, not Joliet's. And the second reason is that Marquette's journal was not a verbatim report put together by the man. Instead, it was a piece of work organized by Marquette's boss, Father Claude de Blanc. And it was de Blanc who had interviewed Louis Joliet after his return to Quebec and had written down his version of the expedition. 
Well, the official journal of Jacques Marquette, when it was finally sent back to France, was really a compilation of Marquette's journal entries, Joliet's oral descriptions, and Dablon's own interpretation of events. In doing this, Dablon gave Marquette a more prominent leadership role, not a shocking thing as he wanted to promote the work done by the Jesuit missionaries and honor his deceased friend. History has thus referred to this as the Marquette and Joliet Expedition, which, as I said, is okay. Both men were important to the expedition, and both are great representations of men of this time and place. A third reason is the simple fact that Jacques Marquette was a Jesuit priest who was seen as a hero to the Catholic Church. He had died teaching the Word of God, and thus, over the centuries, the Church has helped elevate his stature within the Catholic community. Marquette was not just a priest and a missionary and explorer, he was a martyr. That's a hard thing for Louis Joliet to compete with. Now, all of that said, regarding the Joliet-Marquette expedition, I have to say it was, for the most part, a great success. The men's journey, which covered nearly 3,000 miles, or 4,800 kilometers, answered some huge questions that loomed over North America at the time. The big river spoken about by the tribes of the Great Lake was, without question, the Mississippi, and that river's outlet was not in the west or the Pacific, but in the south, in the Gulf of Mexico. Also, Marquette and Joliet had identified two trade routes from the Great Lakes area to the Mississippi and thus to the southern coast of North America. One route went down the Fox River at the mouth of Green Bay and then to the Wisconsin and on to the Mississippi. The other went down the Chicago, Des Plaines, and Illinois rivers. As a note, the portage from the Chicago River to the Illinois River was eventually bypassed with the construction of a canal in the 1800s. This gave us an uninterrupted link from the Great Lakes to the Gulf of Mexico. That aside, these routes discovered by our explorers were incredibly valuable. It was easier to ship goods south, down the Mississippi, than east and up to St. Lawrence, which was often closed due to ice. In fact, the French would establish the settlement of New Orleans in 1718 to officially link up this route. Another thing the Joliet-Marquette expedition did was to continue to fuel the fur trade in Canada and the upper Midwest. As the beaver population was thinned out in the eastern part of North America, trappers moved west, they used the Wisconsin, Ohio, and Illinois rivers to expand their reach, and then the Missouri and Arkansas rivers, ever pressing onward. This would be a key part in the expansion of European influence west of the Mississippi. Now, Marquette and Juliet are not the most famous explorers in the world, and if those two had not done what they had done, someone else would have made the journey sooner than later. But I have to admire the efficiency and effectiveness in which they conducted their expedition. They understood the value of communication and the need to work with the tribes they meant. These were men who understood the frontier, not some dandies from Europe who had no clue how to survive in the wilderness and no understanding of the native peoples. As I said earlier, I admire expeditions that prepare and execute their jobs in a smart way, and this expedition fits that mold. As for Father Marquette, I think he gives us a good representation of the Jesuit missionaries of the era. We understand the challenges and goals of these men, and how influential the Jesuits were as evangelists, as well as explorers. As for Joliet, as I mentioned earlier, he's a great representation of the early voyagers. These were a new breed of person, someone born in Canada and just as home in the wild as in the city. And I want to reiterate that the expedition really was Joliet's. I don't want to diminish Marquette's contributions, but in the end, it was Joliet who was the guy who organized and executed the expedition. Jacques Marquette and Louis Joliet are remembered in many ways, mostly in Canada and the upper Midwest of the United States, as these were the lands they traveled. Marquette University in Milwaukee is named after our Jesuit missionary. There are Marquette counties in Michigan and Wisconsin. There's Marquette Island, not far from St. Ignace, the mission Marquette established. And we can't forget about the Marquette River. You also find schools and parks and towns all over the Midwest and Canada that bear Marquette's name. 
There are several memorials and historical sites related to Marquette and nine statues of the man in France, Canada, and the United States. That's not a bad legacy. Regarding Louis Joliet, the stuff named after him isn't quite as extensive as his counterpart, as he was not a Catholic priest, but there's still a lot. There are towns in Illinois and Montana that bear his name, and the town of Joliet, Quebec, was founded by Barthélemy Joliet, his descendant. There's a college and numerous schools as well named after him. One unique item is that there is a rose named after Joliet, called, appropriately, the Louis Joliet Rose. And so that is it, the story of Jacques Marquette and Louis Joliet and the search for the Mississippi River. I hope you've enjoyed this series. I'll wrap up by saying thanks to the show's supporters. This includes people such as Chris, Dan, Robert, Catherine, Donnell, Rudy, Eileen, Andrew, Benjamin, Cameron, Elizabeth, Christopher, Craig, David, Eamon, Eric, Mark, George, Peter, Philip, Ralph, and so many others. Your support makes the show possible. Thank you. If you are interested in supporting the show financially, please check out our website, explorerspodcast.com. Also, you can help out without paying anything by going onto your podcast app and giving the show a nice review if they allow such things. Apple Podcasts and Spotify are two of the big podcast apps that allow you to leave ratings and reviews. And so that's it for today. Thanks again for listening. I will see you next time. The Explorers Podcast is part of the Airwave Media Network. Go to airwavemedia.com to find other shows that will inspire and thrill including The Age of Napoleon and A Mindful Moment. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.